Park sequels one at a time. I'm Brad. And Dave. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing a little bit about the uh, new show format. Um, I'm sure some people have already noticed the name change in iTunes. We're going to discuss the future of the podcast as well, and we're going to be discussing some of the big changes between the shooting script and the pre-San Diego script. But uh, before we get into that, David, how's your week been? It's been good. Uh, it's been good. I've actually did do have a uh, new thing to talk about. Um, didn't come in yet, but I ordered the or pre-ordered rather the um, Entertainment Earth Velociraptor Club bottle opener. Oh wow! Was that? Uh, I think that was New York Comic Con, uh, New York Toy Fair in February. We we're talking about that. Yeah, we were. It was, um, I thought it was going to be exclusive for that con. It ended up not being one, and I'm very happy that it wasn't because I really wanted it. That'll be that'll be something great to uh, to pull out a party. <laughs> mhm. And he slashes with you at you with this six inch retractable <laughs> bottle opener, like a razor. Slices the bottle right off. <laughs> oh, just just in the supermarket, crying kids or something. Just pull that out. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be annoying? <laughs> uh, no, that's fantastic. I um I noticed on some of the uh, messaging and social medias you've uh, you haven't had much luck looking for new figures. Oh no, no, I haven't. Um, I actually went to Target and Walmart, my, my local stores today, and found nothing. It was all the Wave One stuff that I already had. Yeah, yeah, and we've we've sort of discussed before. I um. There was a couple of new, couple of new dinosaur. There was a Herrerasaurus and uh, uh, what else was there? Oh, a heap of the the red or the orange raptors that like that wave two. But a lot of um, a lot of stuff's just sitting in it. So a lot of that wave one stuff. And we've talked before about how they're going to make this an ongoing line. I don't think the retailers know that because they're not getting new stock in. A lot of stock that's there is just sitting. So it's going to be interesting in the next six months to see what happens toy-wise because a lot of other smaller stores here, they've pretty much there's nothing new, Jurassic World or Fallen Kingdom yeah, at all. Same. It's like they're not even getting anything in at all. So, Well, actually, mine have been getting stuff in because I did notice that um, my Walmart and Target both had new stock. And, like, for example, they had the Super Colossal and the um, Chomp, Extreme Chomping T-Rex that with the uh, Monolophosaurus. Yep, and it's just, it's a shame, like, there's still so much, there's still half the Matchbox cars I want to get, mm. including the Explorer and the M-Class and the uh, RV, but I just, I don't think they're ever going to get out here, I'm going to have to start going online and getting them shipped internationally, but... Even then, that might be difficult, because we actually got word that um, Mattel will be closing their online shop, and uh, the 9th, I think they said. Which is just... Mind-boggling. <laughs> mm. Not not having not having stuff or a retail site on uh, online to sell their wares. They're only going to do it through um through brick and mortar shops. Which yeah, it's mm-hmm. not it's not good for collectors. <laughs> no. Jack, say my say my name. Is my name Alan? Is my name Alan? <laughs> he used to know me. Before we get into the uh, the main discussion for this evening, today, this morning, <laughs> whatever time of the day you're listening to this, um, those uh, using iTunes mainly, I'm not sure if the other podcatchers have got it up already. The uh, 
podcast, we've changed the name to Jurassic Minutes, um, just to reflect more going from the Lost World into Jurassic Park 3. Mm-hmm. So we're just, for the next few weeks anyway, we're just going to focus on sort of having a bit of a discussion about something each week. With the iTunes thing, I've had issues before changing um, iTunes, RSS feeds and that with iTunes and the podcast disappearing or the link's not working and everything else. So at this stage, I think on the iTunes account, it still says the Lost World Minute in places. Same with the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. We can't can't change that, so we're going to leave the Lost World one up and um, still post to that, but we'll be making a new Jurassic Minutes page as well. Dave, you're going to check out Instagram. You've, you've said you've been mm-hmm. able to change that. Yes, I will be able to change the Instagram. I haven't yet, but... Yeah. Um, it will, that will be getting changed, yes. Yeah, yeah, we've just got a few things to uh, to work out. The uh, the website's still at uh, thelostworldminute.wordpress.com. It was only the domain name, lostworldminute.com, that we lost, so I'm going to get to editing that this week and get some uh, links up to the current and the new pages and social media just as a... Um, it'll exist as pretty much just a signpost to... Uh, to sort of guide you to whatever social media you use uh, and where mm. you can find us. And, yeah, it's sort of we're just working through this. Only feedback anyone's got that uh, want to contribute to the show, um, please let us know. And we, it's going to be a bit of a transition period, but we hope it's not too jarring as we uh, work our way towards Jurassic Park 3, which is going to be coming in the next mm. few weeks. Um, the, when we do get Jurassic Park 3, I'm sort of looking at uh, only having it sort of 15, 20 minutes. Discuss a minute if there is any news on the day we can discuss that but sort of movie news is going to die off pretty pretty much altogether now for a good year and a half two years maybe before we start getting movie news so apart mm. from uh, what Mattel's doing and other studios are doing as well there's not going to be a hell of a lot of news to talk about so we're going to focus mainly on the minute itself and whatever we can dig out of that minute there has been mention of Patreon by a couple of listeners um, I was going to stay clear of, but since there's been some interest, um, I think if we're going to have more discussions, have have guests on, sort of pick out something from one of the films and go into a bit of a discussion about it, mm-hmm. sort of juggling around the idea of Mysteries of Jurassic and have a sort of half hour to an hour podcast there just for the patrons that um, we sort of pick something from the films that might be rumour or... Uh, rumour or... or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah rumour or mystery or something and... Um, We've we've got the uh, the great resource which is Jurassicpedia. You can go and find that Jurassic-pedia.com. We're uh, going to be working closely there with them and looking at sort of what we've got from the films and have a bit of a discussion about what we uh, what we think the mystery or the um, how that could have been an outcome or all that sort of stuff. Also, um, even there's a lot of great deaths and kills in the films. Maybe have a look at some of those kills and say well, if we were in those shoes. Or is there any way that you may have been able to get out of it without uh, succumbing to plot? Mm. So there's a bit of discussion there, and it's just, again, something we might just throw up and, and see how much interest we get. Even with the listeners we got at the moment, even if five five people chucked in a dollar a month, that'd, that'd pay for the uh, just for the site hostings and that during the year. So it's just it just helps out a little bit more to uh, keep things running, especially with my job the way it is now, sort of, Cash is a bit tight at the moment, so having to uh, pay Patreon, uh, pay, uh, pay uh, Podbean each year, and that sort of gets expensive. So if we could cover a little bit with a Patreon account, release a couple of extra episodes a week or a fortnight, depending on uh, how much time we got to record them, we'll, we'll go ahead with that as well. Mm. 
that's um that's what we've got planned and once again any any feedback anyone's got uh, comments and that we um we did have a poll up during the week which um asked listeners in the facebook page if they uh preferred just talking about the minutes or having news and discussion on the minutes as well and they went for news and discussion so we can we can sort of maybe pick something out of the minute we're going to talk about and discuss it a little bit before we get into the show again there's going to be new toys coming out hopefully that we can discuss before the uh the minutes as well but it's all just to um to try and get a little bit more streamlined and especially after last week with an hour and hour and 45 minutes on the uh the recap of the lost world and even an hour and 15 minutes just on that final minute where uh an hour of it at the start was talking about toys so i'm gonna i'm gonna start uh releasing some um time stamps with the episodes as well if they do go that long so if you don't want to talk about toys or actually listen to us talk about toys you can just go straight to the minute and start from there go in and document what do you mean like with people my god they are well organized those are some major league toys. One last thing before we get into the discussion. Uh, out of SDCC on the weekend, or past weekend, one thing we didn't talk about is uh, Prime 1 Studios is uh, continuing on. We've had the uh, the Baby Blue and the Adult Blue. I don't, I can't remember what scale that Adult Blue is. It's not one-sixth. Um, I, can't, I think it's like one-tenth. Yeah, like yeah, the Baby's one-one, so it's full-size. But yeah, they've uh, they've released or showed off a heap of new Jurassic Park themed statues that are on the way there. We'll get to see a lot more of them as they release information and pre-orders a little bit later. But the big one we want to talk about today is the Tyrannosaurus Rex 25th anniversary, one uh, fifteenth scale T-Rex in all the glory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this statue is actually by uh, it was sculpted in 3D print by ILM uh, animator and frequent Jurassicpedia contributor. He's kind of a uh, behind, works more behind the scenes, just getting us information. But he sculpted the T-Rex here, and it's based off the animatronic more than the CGI model, which I've seen some kind of kerfuffle with fans who are, who are like, no, I pictured the CGI model. I wanted that. But, I mean, this is the closest you'll ever get to owning the Jurassic, the Jurassic Park T-Rex as it appears as the animatronic with that big bulky body and big squarish head and all those beautiful, beautiful features. Mm. Julian Romero is a absolute perfectionist with his work, and it really shows with this statue. It's absolutely amazing. The color is amazing. The sculpt is amazing. And I think it's a pity he had to defend it from uh, potential buyers because this whole thing, if you are a fan and you know the nitty-gritty of the Jurassic Park T-Rex, this is what you want, you know? It's Yeah, just the detail is fantastic. Sort of much like the uh, Iron Studios one, you've got it on a bit of a base with the uh, tour vehicle track run down the middle of the road, um, classic breakout sort of scenario, and uh, some of the fence in the background. I do love how they've uh, they've got the rain effects <laughs> on this as well. It just sort of matches with that gloss they've got painted on it, but... Yeah, it does look fantastic, and one fifth, yeah, one fifteenth. It's, it's um a little bit smaller than what the Ironhead one is, but still forty two and a half centimeters long. So it's still going to take up a little bit of space, but oh yeah, this is a big girl. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I do love too. They've got the exclusive at the moment. They've got the goat <laughs> chained up at its little its little uh, tether. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what's funny is this statue 
the goat itself is a hundred dollars. Because without the goat, it's seven fifty, but with it's eight. <laughs> oh yeah, yep. Yeah, I've just seen that. Wow. Yeah, so I'm, I'm um, in pay with installments. Let's go have a look here. Pay thirteen. Oh, yeah, so you go over 13 installments and it's only $58. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I wonder how... Uh, it doesn't say how often that is, though. Whether it's weekly, uh -huh. monthly... Oh, this does. Well, seven, it's monthly, so... Yeah, $58 a month. That's pretty pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty doable. That's actually about what the... um, I have the... Uh, Chronicle, uh, not Chronicle, the Iron Studios uh, for Explorer that is uh, set on a 10-month payment plan. I think it's around 50 or 55 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the goggles, I've got the goggles on the same sort of order, and it's, uh, I think it's 44 US a month, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's all right. I'll have, to, um, I'll have to come back to this and have a look, see what I can do. Well, I already know that a buddy of mine is selling his custom-painted um, breakout wrecks uh, for, to buy this piece. He had it painted by Manuel Unda. Yeah. And he asked, he's like, would, he asked Manuel, would you be at all offended if I bought the, if I sold the TRC <laughs> painting for me and buy this? And he's like, immediate reaction, no, buy it, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that uh, that breakout. I yeah, okay. Detail on that aside, I the main issue I got with that is just how wide and long it is. Just to have in a display case, it just takes up so much space because of the way it's sort of mould and um, mm -hmm. pose. Where at least this is all long. You got the the Trenosaur facing along the uh, the fence and the road is that. So it's it's narrow but it's long or wide. So which would just make it a lot easier to display. True. But still, a big piece, fantastic looking, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see some more photos of it. It'll be great. You signed a non-disclosure agreement before you went to the island that expressly forbade you from discussing anything you saw. You... Oh, really? I, I did not know that. All right, so uh, into the bit of the main discussion today. We're not going to go through the whole pre-San Diego script. We, uh, it ankles around the time of the... Uh, two Tyrannosaurs attacking the survivors camp where we started covering it on the uh, regular minutes so you can go back to there and uh, go through and we do discuss some of the differences between the pre-San Diego, the shooting script and the film itself but we, uh, we're we just going to start here at the start of the film and go through a little bit of it, we're not going to do the whole thing today, we'll uh, leave some for a later time but um, there's a lot of differences here and one thing I did notice reading through, there's a lot more dialogue than what we get in the film um, mm -hmm. which of course is going to be cut for time and that when you've got uh, action set pieces and that you want to film and get on screen and have as much of it as you, you can but um, the pre-San Diego script it was sort of a bit of a rewrite or the first rewrite by David Kep off uh, the script that Crichton done for it so there is a lot of novel stuff in here which I do mm -hmm. like uh, you can tell that yeah, Michael Crichton's hands are all over the script you know Mm. I mean, just Malcolm's characterization, the long rants, these atmosphere, the setups, the scenery. I mean, it's all Michael Crichton. Yeah. You know? 
and it just sort of it's interesting that some of the stuff still made it into the film as well uh, there's a lot, of t- a lot of times here where what's sort of said in the script is exactly what we see on the film so mm. we'll get in I wanted to start with the cafe on the beach which sort of happens much the same way although you don't get the island reveal like we do in the movie it sort of opens with the yacht in the bay and uh, we just get the Issa Sauna subtitle on the screen as you sort of see that that yacht but um, with the with the attack sequence and that where Kathy's surrounded by compies it's it's not um, it's not a dozen or so like we see in the film it's it's described as being 50 or more so there's a really a lot more lot lot more there that's um, threatening her and she uh, holds out a hand when she's feeding it and um, one of them actually jumps up into her hand and she's sort of standing in the palm of her hand which mirrors a lot of what we've seen in the uh, Jurassic Park novel. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, and I like that, because it really sets up the... Um, it describes a lot in both this, this script and in the novel how very much it is like a bird, how it feels so light and leaves these three print tracks along her arm as it moves, you know? Yeah, and we've discussed for a long time, especially sort of the newer films, just the raptors being able to um, sort of lightly bounce around and even the, the uh, Indoraptor being able to stand up on that glass. Yes, it did fall through at a couple of stages, but it's it's scurrying up the uh, up the roof, up the tiled roof of the mansion and that without having any issue of falling through. Um, mm-hmm. The only the only real real uh, sort of mention of their weight and that is Grant when he's sort of showing off or describing the skeleton to... Uh, to the computer guy at the dig, sort of how the the bones are full of air sacs and hollows, just like a bird. Yeah, what did she say about 180 to like 200 pounds or something like that? Mm. Yeah, like in the novel, there the, the, you get a lot more of that sort of descriptive with some mm-hmm. of the animals about how much they weigh and that, and you can sort of just carry that over to the films. But yeah, I think it's Muldoon who described who does like most of the describing of them. Because in the novel, Grant is, doesn't specialize in, uh, in raptors. He's more like, he was more like um, Horner in that he specialized mostly in herbivores and large herding animals. Mm. And he just happened to find a baby velocir- a velociraptor and her corpus, which was, again, because of Gregory S. Gregory S. Paul's odd uh, nomenclature, which where he tried reclassifying Velociraptor Dynamicus as a Velociraptor. Yeah. And so in the um and so in the novel it's actually Muldoon who kinda ends up being our kind of fore foremost knowledge on the Velociraptors. He describes them as being built like a sack of bricks where like their mus their bones are close together. So they're very hard to get a clean shot, and they take a very long time to bleed out. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's sort of a little bit of difference at the start with um, with Kathy. But it's interesting, we don't have the uh, the dissolve to Ian yawning. It's a Indian executive at the uh, the boardroom meeting, and this is where uh, a lot of the stuff we see in that deleted scene happens. But we've got um, Hammond's actually... Oh, when the TV version errors, that's exactly how it cuts. Yeah, yep. It cuts from uh, uh, the mom screaming to the engine executive yawning. Hmm. Which is, yeah, just weird that that never translated onto any of the DVD, VHS, or um, Blu-ray now. So it just just makes you wonder how, or what cut 
the TV studio has got for that that to be left in. But um, we got John Hammond speaking through a monitor. Uh, the hurricane seemed like a disaster at the time, but now I think it was a blessing. Nature's way of freeing those animals from their human confines, of giving them another chance to survive. But this, but this time as they were meant to, without man's interference. And um, we sort of pull back, and you can see Hammond's addressing the board via the video monitor. monitor. Uh, he's lying in bed looking horrible, pale, medical equipment beeping by his side. Sort of, it, it really plays up a lot more of the, the fact that he's essentially dying. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yeah. in, in the film, he might just have have a cold or something. Like, it's not really... He gets up out of bed, Ian helps him out of bed, and he sort of wanders around and gets the files and all that, and it's not really... Implied, even at the end, it looks like he's completely healthy again, for the most part, mm-hmm. when he does that speech, but... Yeah, well, the thing about TV cuts is that, um, is that, I mean, they, is that when you cut a lot of times for content and stuff like that, you have to cut into the commercials. So they add stuff back into the movie that wasn't originally there. Right? They did the same thing with Halloween when it first aired on TV. They actually filmed additional scenes when they were making the sequel to put into the TV cut because they had to cut out a bunch of gore, you know? Mm. So I assume that when they first started airing, I think it was Fox who got the first airing rights to um, The Lost World on um, normal stations. Because you, you'd remember back in 97, it was, it was, unless you paid cable, you most households had the basic package. They didn't, they didn't have cable. Back. I, mean, most, I mean, a lot of houses had cable, but growing up in 97, a lot of houses didn't. Yep. And we just got the basic stations, two five seven nine thirty two. Um, I'm not sure how that how well that translates for you, but yeah, we just got ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Uh, local, um, we got a local public broadcasting station, and then the Spanish station. Yep. And that was it. That's all we had growing up. Mm. We didn't have 500 channels. <laughs> and I think it was Fox that first got those basic those basic package airing rights. So um, they would have been the ones that would have probably asked, hey, can we get the deleted scenes in here? Or, or can we get a cut with the deleted scenes just so that we can extend it uh, to have a little bit more meat for the viewers when we cut to commercials? Mm. You know? Yep. And it's probably a good thing, too. Like, even... I'm just trying to recall those deleted scenes on the DVD. I'm, I think it's only the... Um the Ludlow and the Baby Trenosaur where you've actually got the time and some of the um, production stuff actually on the screen as well whereas the boardroom screen the boardroom scene's pretty much shot and uh, there's no effects to add to it but it's sort of it can be put back in without having to edit it at all well that's another thing I forgot about that too you're right when um, I think it was in two, 1999 or 2000 when the we didn't when we first got the um, collector's editions with all that extra content in it and the two-pack VHS or the DVD. Mm. So yeah, the original first, the first, um, the first releases of both Jurassic Park and The Lost World were been just pure VHS. Yeah. Well, I think actually no, Jurassic Park had Betamax for they had a couple Betamax <laughs> releases. Um, now that's a old word. <laughs> is it? It's on laser. I'm pretty sure it's on Laserdisc as well. Or was that oh, already yeah, born? Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. It is on Laserdisc. You're right. I forgot. Nobody remembers Laserdisc. <laughs> but here we've we've been on before, and 
um, eager listeners will know exactly where we were discussing it about how the fact that we've purchased or we're going to going to purchase the 4K versions um, and even the 3D versions, yet we don't have the the players to play them. It's just mm-hmm. it's just okay. Maybe one day when it's cheap enough to buy it, or it's just to have as a collector's collection piece. It's the same same back then. Like I've got a couple of copies of VHS. I've still got the VHS player, so I can still watch them. But there'd be very few people <laughs> that would have maybe they'd have the VHS tape or a couple of versions of it in their display or collection just as a look. Look, this is how it first came out. But uh, wouldn't have a VHS to actually play it. And you wouldn't get a lot of people to go back and watch a lot of things on VHS anyway, just because of the step back in quality. But yeah, it's just another one of those interesting things to have have lying around in your home, and mm-hmm. it doesn't get used a hell of a lot, but it's there if you need it. Yeah, like I mean, like my little cousins, they didn't grow up with uh, that technology. They grew up with DVD. Mm. So I, I showed I showed them a uh, I showed them a VHS, and I asked them, you know what this is? They have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is this is going to keep the tangent going, but <laughs> um, he, uh, there's a, um, a guy at work I was talking to on Friday, and he just turned 18. And I'm just thinking back, he was 10 years old when the original Avengers came out, <laughs> and like he wouldn't have seen, he wouldn't have seen a Jurassic Park movie in in the in the well, in the cinemas until Jurassic World. I just it boggles the mind how much time's passed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but back onto the script, um, we got Hammond continue. Oh, sort of in that first little bit from Hammond, it's sort of interesting there, where he's he's completely um, sort of saying how the disaster Jurassic Park was a blessing and nature's way of freeing the animals from human confines, not sort mm-hmm. of not confirming or denying the fact that there's animals still on Nublar, or not even saying anything about sauna, but. Uh, well, if if it, yeah, if it's talking about the hurricane, it'd have to be sauna. So he's not actually talking about uh, Nublar there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's one thing we can get into in a <laughs> Patreon. It is not a hurricane that hits Jurassic Park. It is a tropical storm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but uh, that's that's that's, right. for, that's for another time. Um, <laughs> as Hammond continues, there are some corporate issues that are not about the bottom line. We have so much to learn about these creatures, a whole world of intricate interlocking behaviours vanished everywhere except for Site B. Please let's not do what is good for more men at the expense of what's best for all their mankind. So he's sort of, we know he's um, doing the ecological lectures and that yeah. in other places and here it's sort of don't, don't uh, Pretty much, don't exploit the animals for your for your profit. When um, the world can learn about their behaviours and everything else, mm-hmm. which which was pretty much all this was cut from the that boardroom scene, and not sort of added in there. But uh, then we get Peter Ludlow sort of address the board exactly as we do see in the lead scene. And uh, mid speech, mid speech, he pushes a model of JP San Diego down the long table as it sort of slides down in front of the board members. There's a lot more people in the room as well, not just the people around the table. There's, it's it's weird setup. There's also sort of um, pews and benches around the walls, stacked up where there's more, more board members. But uh, everyone votes, and Hammond's furious. He sort of raises his hand, and holds a remote control, and points at the TV screen because he's just been voted out of InGen, and uh, no longer the CEO. So it's something else at the end of that. Uh, 
that deleted scene we didn't get to see either. Mm. But then we cut to a welder's yard. Sparks fly out the windows of a small shed that's in the middle of the yard, and we hear a phone ring, and the welder shuts off, or the guy shuts the uh, welder off, and we see it's Dieter Stark, and he uh, answers the phone and steps out of the shed, cigarette in his mouth, and just says, yeah, and uh, the scene ends, which is probably a good thing that didn't end up in the film. Like, yes, it would have added a little bit more to Dieter's character, but the fact mm-hmm. that, okay, he's, he's a, some sort of salvage worker or something... And um, a smoker, well, that's, that's that'd be bad now. Back in '97, it's not bad to be a smoker. Hey, Nick was a smoker as well. In yeah, the film. I mean, everybody, I won't say everybody smoked uh, back in '97 because it was kind of the start of the uh, anti-smoking stuff. Mm. But I mean, it was it was it wasn't as bad as it is now. I mean, nowadays they'd be stuck on the MPAA uh, brief smoking or something like that, you know? Yeah, and we haven't really discussed, but it's it's been talked about in the community a lot. Just Ray Arnold is just every scene he's got a smoke hanging out of his mouth. Well, he's described as a chain smoker. Yeah, yep, yep. Well, you just imagine in that control room without ventilation, it'd, it'd just be a mist of smoke in there. <laughs> I remember those. I remember those days. Yeah. Well, even the days when you were allowed to do it on planes, it's just. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember that, but I mean, I can just oh. imagine. Yeah, no, no, I can't remember it, but just. The fact that that was a thing once. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, my dad remembers the in the eighties the smoking car in the um, and the trains and just not being. I mean, being a smoker himself, but being just incapable of sitting in there because it just stunk so badly yeah. of tobacco. Yep. But we uh, we cut from that scene with Dita to uh, the subway scene, and here we get our introduction to Ian Malcolm, and again, as you said, sort of a lot. Um, the same as what he is in the novel here. He's got he's got his cane that he's using. He uh, he almost misses the train, uses his cane to stop, stop the doors from closing in front of him. And uh, he's definitely got his limp as well. Yeah, we get the commuter sort of roar at, roar at Malcolm, much as we see in the film. But uh, we actually get a response from Malcolm as well. He says he's misquoted. I was merely speculating on the evolutionary scenario of a lost world. I never said it was any such place. And um, he then gets up and goes to another seat where the women are looking at him. And he sort of just raises his shirt collar to sort of hide <laughs> from uh, the onlookers. But here it sort of brings back the, the thing he Malcolm and uh, Richard Levine were looking for in the novel, that theoretical lost world, not so much an in-gen creation, but uh, a place where uh, animals, prehistoric animals, could have survived the, uh, the extinction event and continued on. Well, I bring up the fact that it's, it was assumed that the dinosaurs died from the license contingency at Nublar. But then we get later on in this movie that, well, they survived the license contingency because of the reasons that Sarah Harding said. They were eating high uh, lysine, or lysine high, uh, the herbivores were eating lysine high foods, and then the dinosaurs, or the carnivores were eating the herbivores, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine there would have been some small die-off in the in the transition where because it's sort of it'd take a little mm-hmm. bit of time to go from one to the other but it's um it's sort of one of those things in the novel where Richard Levine thinks um this is all in-gen related and Malcolm's like he knows that nut lysine there's no way the animals could have survived until uh until he starts finding the uh the carcasses wash up on Costa Rica and sends him mm-hmm. back sends him back the DX tag and the piece of flesh and Malcolm sort of 
he's sort of not really angry at it, but he's sort of he wants to find out as as much as everyone else just how the animals are still surviving and and going to the island to find out. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of it's it's a little bit like they've brought in Sarah in the film to sort of well he's going to go there and save his girlfriend, whereas uh, here we'll get to in a minute it's more uh, more to clear his name, but. Uh, we do cut to Hammond's estate, and the butler opens the door, and as we see in the film, who shall I tell Mr. Hammond is calling? But before Malcolm can respond, the small dog runs to the open door, barking annoyingly, and uh, <laughs> Malcolm swings the cane in one single motion and sends the dog sliding across the floor, <laughs> and it runs <laughs> off whimpering, which, okay, the Tyrannosaurus and the dog at the end's bad... Bad Spielberg, bad. But he having Malcolm just pretty much smack a dog with his cane and send it flying across the ground would have got people really upset as well, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that probably would have gotten me upset just because, I mean, that is kind of a dick move. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. And the, the butler even asks him afterwards. He sort of asks Malcolm if he's not an animal lover, and Malcolm just responds, not really. So <laughs> he just hates yappy little dogs. <laughs> Or he doesn't like dinosaurs in, or animals in general because of the dinosaurs. Yeah, yep. Yeah, well, that's it. We we get the uh, he loves kids, but we don't know about pets or anything else. So no. But uh, we cut to Hammond's office, and uh, Malcolm enters the darkened room, and Hammond's lying in a bed that we've seen early on the display in the boardroom, and uh, around him all the medical equipment's there, sort of being disguised as well as possible among furniture and flowers. But the uh, sheer abundance of it tells us that whatever's stricken him, it's going to win this battle. And um, Hammond sort of tells Ian not to linger in the doorway and come in, come in, and Malcolm steps in. We get a bit of back and forth here between Hammond and Malcolm. He asks him, how's the leg? And Malcolm responds resentful. And uh, Hammond sort of goes on, when you have time, a lot of time to think, it's funny who you remember. It's the people who challenge you. It is the quality of our opponents that gives us accomplishments meaning I never told you how sorry I was about what happened after we returned Malcolm sort of notices Hammond's deteriorating condition sort of holds back the anger over it <laughs> and um, it just sort of says I didn't know you weren't well and uh, Hammond actually says it's the lawyers the lawyers are finally killing me might as well call back to the first novel with that um, the first movie with that one where he says he doesn't care for lawyers mm. and then we sort of get the bit about the, the I was right and you were wrong that sort of goes on a bit uh, did you ever expect me to say that? Uh, spectacularly wrong. Instead of observing those animals, I tried to control them. I squandered an opportunity, and we all still know next to nothing about their lives. Not even, uh, not their lives as man would have them behind electric fences, in, but in the wild, behaviour in the natural habitat, the impossible dream of any paleontologist. It could have, I could have had it, but I let it slip away. And then we get the pause and thank God for sight B. And Malcolm just stares at him for a long moment. <laughs> And then, much like um, some of Malcolm's dialogue in the in the Lost World novel, we get uh, Hammond. Well, it didn't seem that that trifle compact to you. And Malcolm asks, "What are you talking about?" And Hammond replies, "The hatchery, in particular. You know, my initial yields had to be low, far less than one percent. That's a thousand embryos for every single live birth. Genetic engineering on that scale implies a giant operation, not the spotless little laboratory I showed you on uh, on Nublar." So. And Malcolm sort of not believing him. And he sort of then goes into the just a showroom for the tourists and that they've been living on for four years without human interference. 
and then Hammond sort of goes in that um, he's been putting things together for over a year, getting a team together to uh, to go the animal, uh, go the animal, go the island, uh, and pretty much gives him his checkbook and says his phone numbers for everyone, contact them, they won't believe you about what they're going to see, so don't bother trying to convince them, just use my checkbook to get them there. <laughs> Which would have been uh, expensive for some of them, but yeah, sort of tells Ian as much money and equipment as you need, but you've got to leave immediately. If we hesitate, all will be lost. And we get a bit more back and forth between them, but he, um, Malcolm flips through the, uh, the, the files and sees that Sarah's in there and sort of talks to him Mel uh, Hammond says that sort of um, she's got theories about parenting, nurturing among hunters and scavengers, and um, she'd be dying to prove her theories on a scale like this. And that Malcolm can convince her to go should be a major coup for the operation. But Malcolm just sort of sh- flips, uh, shakes his head, and flips through the um, files sadly. And Hammond goes on about how he wants to uh, documentation and forensic ph- photographic methods and everything just to. Uh, just to make it all look legit and not be um, pulled apart by sceptics when they get back. But, mm-hmm. but Malcolm sort of then just puts the files down going, I'm not going, John. <laughs> he's, he's he's too old. He's, he doesn't want to do it anymore. And um, uh, Hammond sort of pleads with me, you're my last chance to give something to the real world of real value. And um, he sort of, he can't walk so far and leave no footprints, die and leave nothing with my name on it. I will not be known for only my failures. And you will not allow yourself to go down history as a lunatic. You're too smart. You're too proud. Dr. Malcolm, please. This is a chance of redemption for both of us. There's no time to advocate. Uh, we must seize it now before... And then Ludlow actually steps into the room. Malcolm sort of uses that as his cue to go. And... Ludlow sort of tells him as they're walking towards the door that um, about the whole sharing campfire stories with the uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that entire uh, conversation actually comes after uh, uh, Malcolm meets with Hammond instead yeah. of before appears in the movie. Yep. Yeah, and so the last thing Malcolm says to Hammond as he leaves is just find someone else, <laughs> which sort of Hammond's there. He's been kicked out of Ingen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Which surely, if if you just told Malcolm, hey, I've been removed from CEO, they're taken, they're going to go to the island and get these animals and bring them back. I'm sure that that would be more incentive for him to go and try and stop mm-hmm. it. Well, that's actually what he does in the movie. In the final cut, he tells Hammond, I mean, uh, he tells Malcolm that they've taken control of Injun from him because of the Kathy uh, Beach attack. And that they're going to pillage the Lost World, you know, basically. Well, you say that it's only a matter of time before this Lost World's found pillaged. So it's 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 a bit cryptic, much like a lot of the things he says <laughs> says there, sort of. Well, he is Hammond. Yeah, yeah. And we sort of get the whole the whole thing between Malcolm and Ludlow about um, ruining you know, the non-disclosure agreement and violating that agreement costing Malcolm his livelihood, which um, he relied on relied on the uh, the money to support his children, which is sort of interesting little callback there to the first movie more so than the novel, because I can't recall the whole Kids, Kids, I Love Kids. I don't think that was in the original novel. I think that was a movie thing. Yeah, I think it was too. Yeah. 
But um, as they sort of get to the door, Ludlow tosses something to Malcolm hard and um, sails across the foyer upright, and Malcolm reaches out and catches it, and it's revealed to be his cane. And Ludlow sort of taunts him and says, don't forget that. And Malcolm stares at him for a long moment. Finally, he turns and walks away. But he does not in um, he doesn't leave the apartment. Instead, he turns around, walks back towards Hammond's room, directly past Ludlow, and um, closes the door behind him. And you can hear the click as the door locks. It's sort of the whole Ludlow accusing Malcolm of selling his story and and the payoff and insult of his uh, compensation. That it's sort of like he's, he doesn't want to um, he doesn't want this to continue with Floodlow. But as he sort of walks back into the into the uh, room, Hammond looks up hopeful. And Malcolm, he sort of walks across and reaches down and picks up the file folder from beside his bed and asks Hammond if he's got a satellite phone. Then we cut to Mombasa and get the bar scene there as much as we see in the um, in that delete scene as well. Mm-hmm. And then we get one really interesting thing here because um, as we've seen before, Malcolm picked up the satellite phone and uh, we cut to African Savannah at night which is directly out of the novel as well and Sarah Harding mm-hmm. looked through night vision goggles at a pack of hyenas stalking an African buffalo Sarah shows some signs of ignoring danger here by trying to get close to the uh, or get closer to the kill that the pack's brought down which is sort of mirrored in the uh, film by uh, approaching the stegosaur as well Mm-hmm. Yeah, this scene was completely out of the novel. It's um <clears throat> like almost exactly as it happens in the novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, as she's sort of sneaking up through the long grass towards the uh, predators, the satellite phone, the backpack starts going off. The, her and her research assistant are sort of fumbling around trying to get it to turn off, almost sort of in a similar way as what the uh, the kids are trying to turn the torch off in the Explorer in Jurassic Park. So just turn it off, turn it off making more noise than they need to <laughs> and alerting the predators to where they are but it doesn't it doesn't go downhill for them but we um we just sort of hear Malcolm's voice as he's talking to them from some time and oh no sorry we don't hear Malcolm's voice through the phone but we hear um Sarah's respond with well, responds with when um obviously he's just called her and asked her to come to come down to Costa Rica for the uh expedition mm-hmm and it's just it's just more set up uh, here where we're sort of bouncing around between char- different characters, sort of getting getting the team together, if you will, uh, like you do in a lot of films. But again, just for the um, the length and that, a lot of it was cut. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see why they did. They kind of did this with Fallen Kingdom. They bounced around a lot to the um, different introductions, and it kind of just made it lag a bit. I mean, what a lot of there's a lot out there that could have just been done implicitly. Mm. You know? Yeah. Plus, they didn't timestamp or anything, so you have no idea how much time passes. True. <laughs> but, um... True. Yeah, but still, it would have, it would have, um, added for a bit of a, bit of a scene, because even... Well, we had Kathy's attack at the start, so you have seen dinosaurs by this point. And then it's a long, it's a long slog before you get back on the island, and I think... Sarah's introduction in the last, in the film is probably good enough. Mm-hmm. No, I love her introduction in the film. I mean, it's kind of more surprising. But it's also, I mean, it, but it's funny in a fun way, you know? Or she just 
you see uh, Nick just standing there taking pictures, and the camera pans down, and there's Sarah. Mm. You know? Yeah, and even like Malcolm's sort of the whole, this place is dangerous, you've sent me girlfriend to this island alone, and he's sort of been talking the worst about all this, and they find a backpack torn, and you think something's happened, and no, she, she is doing what she does naturally, um, taking photos of animals, and it just sort of shoots Malcolm down, but no, that's my lucky pack, that's how it always looks. <laughs> it's like I've been here for three days, and or how, how long she's been there, and aunt isn't in danger or hasn't hasn't been in danger so we cut after that scene to uh mobile field systems malcolm's doing leg workouts to rehabilitate his leg while um we get a quick look at through the workshop vehicles being worked on um malcolm tells sarah that eddie's eddie car is making the cars and equipment and will be coming along to make sure everything's works or everything works on the island and um eddie's yelling at a workman as the high hide crashes down to the ground close to him and the workman sort of does the, the whole spec so it can, can't deform at 12,000 PSI. They sort of inspect it while it's on the, gr- on the floor for a bit, and Malcolm's back on the phone, or was back on the phone with Sarah, but sort of hangs up, and they sort of discuss the high height a little bit. The same, same out of the novel, that whole light but strong argument they have in there with a lot of stuff. And then we sort of get the introduction to Kelly Malcolm. She's on vacation and here to spend some time with her father, but Malcolm forgot about it, <laughs> which is interesting. He didn't. He forgot that his uh, daughter was coming to see. But uh, we cut up to Eddie's office and he sort of tells her they, she can stay at Karen's for the night before getting on the bus and going back home tomorrow, where her mother will be waiting for her. So the mother hasn't split; they're just um, separated, of course. But he's going to send her back to uh, back to mum while he goes to sauna. But then we get we get a lot of the whole back and forth between them as we see in the film and Eddie over to PA, which I was surprised that bit was in the original script. I thought that would have been a Spielberg or something added specifically for the film, just with the whole um, Doctor Malcolm downstairs. Mm-hmm. No, the um, the way that the it's described though, I mean, it's much more close to the novel in a way because that. That um, Ian Malcolm working on his leg is kind of in the, I believe, in the novel as well, isn't it? Well, he rubs, he sort of rubs it like massages it or something a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole conversation where Thorne's like, "I wanted, I wanted uh, light but strong, light but strong. I God save me from academics or something like that." Wasn't that in the novel too? I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then um, and pretty much the same as we see in the film as well. Kelly sort of starts and does a walk through the trailers and mm-hmm. um, looks at the map and then we cut to the barge in the open ocean and we uh, we see the RV, the uh, AAV and there's a Jeep on there as well. So, um, of course, as we discussed back in early minutes, we have the uh, fifth member of the team, which is Dr. Judson and uh, he's seasick and asks why they couldn't fly there by air or get airlifted in. And Malcolm answers that uh, Dr. Harding insisted we go by sea. Helicopters are too disruptive. They, uh, um, they aren't piles of bones. You're, you'll be studying this time, Dr. Judson. They live, they breathe, and they react. So, Which is kind of interesting, kind of callback from the novel, because in the novel they do use helicopters. Mm. So I wonder if that's something that perhaps, um, that perhaps quite regretted doing in the novel. And, and wanted to redo with the movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, apart from the fact that 
a Huey wouldn't lift a 40-foot lift container with an RV in it. <laughs> anyway, so... If, you, it will, if you're going to have to do it practically on screen, you're going to have to try and do it practically. So if you're going to carry something like that, you either get the Chinook or like an Ericsson Skycrane or something to lift that stuff in and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, having two of those come in and drop equipment is going to make a lot of noise and spook some animals. But we um, we also get our introduction to Nick Van Owen here. He's sort of sitting sitting on uh, on the deck amongst a pile of video cameras and equipment, uh, playing a Game Boy, <laughs> which I thought was a fun <laughs> little callback to the nineties. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I remember Game Boys. I remember having an electric yellow Game Boy color. Yeah. Yeah, I just had the original. I never. By the time they started coming out with all the uh, different colors and the mini and the color and all that, I was sort of. I I was spending money on getting a computer and that. But, yeah, um, I remember it was, electric, it was like a Pikachu yellow Game Boy uh, color with Pokemon stickers all over it. Yep. I mean, I there was not an inch of free space that was not covered that wasn't covered <laughs> by either a button or a Pokemon sticker. That would have been around the same time where they made the cameras to go on the top of them as well. And just to take your money, the little cameras, then they had the little Polaroid printers that you could print the photos off. And, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's probably the reason why I didn't get it, because it cost too much. But um, Nick Van Owen, what game do you reckon he's playing? Do you reckon he's a Tetris man, or is he playing something else? I uh, don't know. It's never described what he's right. actually playing, but... <laughs> It would be it would be a good little bit of foreshadowing if he was playing Pokemon or something. Got to catch them all to um, <laughs> to imply what InGen's going to be doing in a few minutes' time. But um, she sort of um, it's interesting the whole the whole back and forth we had with Malcolm and Nick with his introduction in the movie. It's all here with uh, Sarah and sort of the whole um, Nightline cameraman for six years and freelance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even the Greenpeace bit. And um, he sort of tells tells Sarah that um, yeah, women about eighty percent female in Greenpeace. She sort of says that's very noisy of you, and you can sort of hear the noisy Game Boy as he's sort of not looking up from it. But Sarah asks him if he doesn't think he's going to be bringing the Game Boy with him, do you? And sort of Nick grins and shuts it off. And you sort of hear because you sort of the start here where. He doesn't believe why they're going there. He sort of says, hey, I wouldn't want to spook the woolly mammoths. And Sarah asks him if he thinks it's all a joke. And Nick says, oh, please, how am I supposed to be straight face when he sort of gestures to him, uh, to Malcolm, who's all dressed in black? How am I supposed to keep a straight face when Johnny Cash there tells me I'm going to Skull Island? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just great that Malcolm all dressed in black is being described as Johnny Cash. And you get that got that um, King Kong reference as well. Yeah, I'd have to. Oh, I don't know if that's that's in the novel either. What? Um, just Ian being described as a new a new Johnny Cash or something, being dressed. Yeah, like in the first novel, it's described that he prefers either black or grey mm. because he never has to worry about mixing up clothing and if when he's getting dressed. Which, funnily enough, is very similar to his character in The Fly as well. Yeah. He only wears the same clothes day in, day out, like the same design or colour. Mm-hmm. But um, Sarah's not amused and um, sort of tells Nick that uh, he's, Ian's a very good friend of hers. Nick says he doesn't need a friend, he needs a shrink. 
And Sarah sort of tells him that she believes him, that they're going there to see dinosaurs, even though she's sort of got that look of doubt on her face. And um, Nick sort of says, come on, there's only one reason any of us are here, and that's because he's check cleared. But then sort of Sarah sort of says to him, here, you can't pull it off while playing Donkey Kong, so maybe maybe he was playing Donkey Kong, but I don't... Mm. I, I don't know if that was on the Game Boy, was it? Oh, it might have been. I can't remember either. Yeah. No. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the boat captain, um, or the boat's captain, who is a Costa Rican man as well, sort of points ahead and shouts to them, uh, there it is. Then they all turn and look yeah. over the bow up ahead, and you can see the sheer reddish-gray cliffs of volcanic rock, which raised, mm-hmm. rise dramatically out of the heavy fog, or the fog-heavy ocean, which, again, is just that, back to the novel, where um, you got the fog, fog that just lingers and clings to the coastline. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is kind of like a great reveal because that's exactly how it happened in King Kong was the the island rising as these sheer cliffs mm. right out of the ocean, like and fog and right out of the fog, like it was some kind of wall. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. You don't only you don't only have the, uh, the like the isolation at the fact that it's on island, but you've got that massive rock wall that sort of goes around it as well. Um, but um, the boat passes through the fog and we get an unloading scene, which is interesting because we didn't get this in the uh, in the novel, but Malcolm tells the captain to be back in three days, but keep the radio and phone close by. And the captain tells him not to worry, he's lived in the area for years. The islands are... And he's sort of cut off by the cry of a distant... Distant, distant bird, which again comes from the novel, then finishes with safe. <laughs> so, but they move up onto a grassy plain not far from the lagoon, where it overlooks the island interior. And Eddie uses the winch on the jeep to erect the high hide, overhanging branches from a nearby tree, almost conceal the structure at the top of the uh, leg struts. So here they've got the legs for it. It's it's its own platform. It's not being held up by the M the M class or anything yeah. like that and it's much like the much like the novel where they've gone to a central area that's up high uh, to overlook the island interior and have that vantage point and set the uh, high height up there which just it just makes sense a lot more than parking on the side of the cliff and that where they do in the film even though mm-hmm. that um, they're on the ridge here there must be a drop off from the ridge because we get the uh, the trailer attack later on but uh, Nick lights a smoke and tosses the match into the grass and Malcolm sees it. He addresses the group saying he knows you'll think I'm crazy for what uh, he told and they'll see. But but he just sort of, as we said before, just starts to go on a bit of a rant. And uh, as he's doing it, you can sort of see behind him the trees, the trees start to move. And uh, we cut to inside the trailers as uh, Kelly escapes the storage locker. Pretty much exactly the same as the kids do in the novel where... Uh, student ID card comes out with a photo on it and that's what we see so we know it's her and uh, slides it up and unlatches the door because um, yeah like the novel Eddie went through before the uh, RVs went onto the ship and um, made sure all the doors were locked <laughs> so stuff doesn't go flying everywhere like anyone that's had an RV or a caravan or anything camper has known that uh, driving down the road if a door comes open there's a mess mess to be had <laughs> But I think that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Because um, um, pretty much from here they uh, go for their walk through the um, through the jungle and find the stegosaurs. But we can discuss mm-hmm. that next week. So anything else there you want to discuss before we get heavy for the day? 
I think we uh, went through that pretty well. But half an hour from now, John Hammond's dream reimagined will come true. For one one hundredth the cost of building a destination resort thousands of miles away. I believe I've spent enough time in the company of death. Tonight we'll christen Jurassic Park San Diego with a mega attraction that can't stop on the spot with anything in park. We work with the Costa Rican Department of Biological Preserves to establish a set of rules for the preservation and isolation of that island. These creatures require our absence to survive, not our help. And if we could only step aside and trust in nature, life 